Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today we have with us Associate Professor Martin Griffiths, with the department, who is with the Department of International Business and Asian Studies, of course. And uh, today Martin is going to make an argument or a case for the centrality of liberal theory in international relations thinking. And uh, what Martin speaks to us about today is drawn from he has just finished, which is coming out next year, I believe, with Palgrave Macmillan, uh, which looks at this very issue, rethinking international relations theory and the role of liberal theory in that process. So we'll hand it over to Martin. Thank you very much. And thanks for coming and taking time out of your busy schedules, I'm sure. Um, what I'm going to do is just read the conclusions to the book and kind of work backwards and sort of tell you a little bit about how I got to those conclusions. The book is a response to uh, these books. So if you want to know kind of the problem, then do um, send those around and, and have a look. But this is, this is the, what I think, and I've got one of mine here too, right? So it's not as if I'm innocent, okay? I'm also part of the problem. So this is a kind of uh, trying to come to grips with the problems of, of the conventional presentation of international relations theory, all right? But just to show you that the problem is quite widespread, all these books have been published over the past three years, with the exception of one of them, but um, this is the conventional wisdom about how to understand international relations theory, and my book is a response to it, basically arguing that IR theory has become marginal to the study of international relations, and that this is not something that we should celebrate, that it's actually a, a really a quite significant problem, um, that if you're going to have a discipline, in the sense of disciplined thinking about international relations, then you would have thought IR theory should be um, really at the heart of the discipline. Um, and I think increasingly it isn't. It's, uh, uh, so my, my book is a response to that. But anyway, let me read you the conclusions and then I'll work backwards and, and incorporate my critique of some of these kinds of things. So I conclude the book with a, a quote from my favourite author, uh, Max Weber. One day, this is written by his, by his uh, daughter. His, his, she wrote a biography of him. One day when Max was asked what his scholarship meant to him, he replied, I want to see how much I can stand. What did he mean by that? Perhaps that he regarded it as his task to endure the antinomies of existence and further to exert to the utmost his freedom from illusions and yet to keep his ideals inviolate. Which I really like. So my, my, the book is kind of in the spirit of that Weberian reflection on his entire career. The book has been based on a kind of post-positivist recognition that worldviews in the study of international relations are necessary. They frame the domain of international relations. They provide the conceptual language, the fundamental assumptions, both ontological and evaluative, on the basis of which specific phenomena and patent relations are explained via empirical theory. As is increasingly recognized in the field, Contemporary IR theory exhibits, apparently, a wide variety of allegedly competing worldviews. To be sure, they're not all mutually exclusive. We're told that productive conversations take place between realists and liberals over the dynamics of cooperation among states and the conditions for regime maintenance in a variety of issue areas. 
we understand there is some overlap between Marxism and the emergence of critical theory. Similarly, feminism is a multidimensional worldview, apparently, in which liberals, radicals, and post-structuralists engage in dialogue with one another. IR theory in the 21st century, if you read books like this, is inextricably pluralistic. Pluralism, however, is not necessarily to be valued if it glosses over the balkanization of the field into what one writer has called burgeoning sub-communities instead of a community of scholars. So in this book, I try to rethink IR theory as an ongoing great debate generated by what I call the paradoxes and contradictions of liberal internationalism. So my argument is very different from, and I hope it improves upon, the conventional narrative in the field. The conventional narrative of the field consists of four so-called great debates. The first between realists, idealists, 1930s. Second, behavioralists, traditionalists, 1960s. Third, three competing paradigms, realism, pluralism, structuralism, 1970s. And the fourth debate allegedly took place between rationalists and reflectivists in the 1990s, from which spawned constructivism. So there's this is an enduring narrative which we teach our students. I'm always, when I teach a course called International Theory, and I take the students through this narrative, and I watch their eyes glaze over, and their heads begin to roll, I, begin to, I know I've got a problem, which is so what? <clears throat> the endurance of the narrative coexists with a recognition of its limits. In recent years, there's been a growing literature that undermines the narrative. It exposes the degree to which each debate, so-called debate, misrepresents the historical record, exaggerates the extent to which any real debate took place, and mistakenly gives the impression of a discipline that somehow evolves to a higher plane of sophistication at the conclusion of each debate. The narrative conceals the degree to which the debates interact with each other and the degree to which they involve issues that persist beyond the timeline dictated by the orthodox narrative. So you can observe some close overlap between the second debate, between traditionalists and behavioralists, and the fourth debate, between rationalists and reflectivists. And for some scholars, the first debate, between realists and idealists, this is relevant today, John Mearsheimer, Andrew, as it was in the 1930s. So if the narrative conceals as much as it reveals, it nevertheless discloses a distinct tendency to what I argue is disciplinary insularity, disciplinary introspection. <coughs> it's quite paradoxical for a discipline of international relations, which is meant to be studying world politics. The subordination of theory, and indeed the absence of much theory, to meta-theory. In other words, questions about what is a good theory as opposed to the sort of kind of frustrations that generated kind of the work of someone like Ken Waltz. And fragmentation, balkanization, not dialogue, not debate. As a result, IR theory today is a fragmented collection of diverse perspectives, and no one spends a lot of time telling us about what is the epistemological stature of these so-called perspectives, each with their own cheerleaders, their own gurus, their academic headquarters, and their publishing bases, books, journals. So for, I suggest that for many students of international relations confronted with this presentation of what IR theory is, it's a site of boredom and irrelevance. So what I try and do then is to defend, defend a view of IR theory. 
yes, as pluralistic, but not as pluralistic as is often portrayed in these kinds of books, but pluralistic and dialogical. Right? And so what I try to do is I try to return to and resuscitate a way of thinking about international relations expressed in the work of Martin White, 1913 to 1972. In the late 50s, White, as, as you may know, played a leading role in the so-called British Committee on the Theory of International Politics with Herbert Butterfield, an English historian. And in 66, the committee published a book called Diplomatic Investigations, in which White wrote one of his kind of weirdest but most influential articles entitled, Why is There No International Theory? And his argument was based on the proposition that the most fundamental question you can ask in international theory is, and it's an interesting, I mean, you just want to kind of reflect on this, why he thought this was a fundamental question. But anyway, this is the fun most fundamental question you can ask in international theory. What is international society? I'll return to this about why he thought this was a fundamental question. What is international society? Just as the central question in political theory is, what is a state? And this assertion rested on his belief that if political theory is the tradition of speculation about the state, then international relations theory may be supposed to be a tradition of speculation about the society of states, or the family of nations, or the international community. Now, having posed that question, White went on to argue that IR theory is marked not only by paucity, but also by intellectual and moral poverty. There simply were no equivalents in the Western tradition to the corpus of texts by Plato, Hobbes, Locke, Miller, Rousseau. The reason for this is double-edged, according to White. On the one hand, Western political theorists are traditionally focused on the state as the site of progress and what he calls the consummation of political experience. On the other hand, White noted a kind of recalcitrance of international politics to being theorized about. The reason for this, and again it comes back to his fundamental question, and it's curious why he said this. He said the theorizing has to be done in the language of political theory and law. You might want to think about that. But this is appropriate, he said, to man's control of his social life. International theory is the theory of survival. So there's no self-contained body of IR theory as White conceived it. And so what he did was he distinguished between what he called traditions of thought, embodied in, handed down by writers, political leaders. And White is very careful in talking about these so-called traditions of thought to emphasize just how broadly his typology is constructed to cover and simplify a vast range of philosophical, legal, and historical literature, as well as to codify an analogous range of political practice. If we speak of these types of international theory as patterns of thought, we approach them from a philosophical point, standpoint. We should be likely to note the logical coherence of the complex of thought and how acceptance of any one unit idea is likely to entail logically most of the others. If we speak of them as traditions of thought, we're likely to notice illogicalities, discontinuities, because exigencies of political life often override logic. We will find all kinds of intermediate uh, positions. Now, as we know, I mean, what... White did was he, he distinguished between what came to be known as the three R's, realism, rationalism, and revolutionism. Now, I won't take you through or regurgitate what, what White did. Uh, White's trialectic, as it's come to be known, of international thought is eclectic because he refused to de delineate these traditions with any philosophic or analytical position. And he also had a deep personal reluctance to transcend them, or to locate his views consistently within the parameters of any single one. 
One reason for this is that according to White, each of the traditions was a codification of one of three sociological conditions that constituted the subject matter of international relations. What he called anarchy, the absence of government, habitual intercourse, apparent in diplomacy, law, and other forms of interdependence, and what he called moral solidarity, a latent community of humankind, a global society of men and women, which lies behind the legal fiction of statehood. And in his writing, the three traditions were pedagogical tools with which to organize the discussion of war, national interest, diplomacy, the balance of power, and international, international law. Uh, now, why is, his work has been studied a lot, okay? and there, there are two particular problems with study. First of all, there's lots of ways right, to subdivide the discipline. Carr, E.H. Carr had two, so he had utopians and he had realists. Martin White has three, three R's. Michael Donnellan, in a book that isn't read very much in 1990, he used five. Uh, Terry Narden and David Mappel have divided the field of international relations among no less than 12 different traditions of inquiry. If you look at these books, the, different, the numbers, nah, it doesn't really matter. There's a list of various kinds of numbers. And what you've got to ask is what makes his system of classification more useful than anyone else's, particularly if, as he acknowledged, the categories keep breaking down. And if, as White clarifies in his lectures, it's wrong to force particular individuals into one exclusive tradition. In the absence of any attempt to defend the metaphysical significance of the three R's, it's not clear why they should be of much help to anyone not endowed with Martin White's own ability to employ them with such historical subtlety and erudition. White himself was pessimistic about our ability to transcend the three R's, or about the ability of one of them to triumph over the other two, but he was reluctant ever to defend this position explicitly. Now, what I do in my book is, is, is I've been inspired by Martin White, but I replace his traditions of international thought realism, rationalism, and revolutionism with my own three. Liberal internationalism, realism, and cosmopolitanism. Whereas it is conventional wisdom to start with realism as the allegedly dominant theoretical perspective in the field, I deliberately and somewhat provocatively place liberal internationalism at the heart of IR theory. And I do so for three main reasons. First of all, Realism only dominates the study of international relations if one takes an extraordinarily narrow view of what realism entails. As I argue in one chapter in the book, there is much more to realism than its conventional portrayal of a world in which states compete for power in an anarchical environment. In my view, realism is best understood and best understands itself as a reaction to and an ongoing critique of liberal internationalism. The same goes for cosmopolitanism and critical theory, or some versions of it. Second, placing liberal internationalism at the center of international relations theory is justified because of its unique status as the official ideology of the most powerful state in the world, the United States. And third, liberal internationalism contains a persuasive set of arguments that confront what I believe are the central challenges for anyone studying international relations. One of the things I do in the book, at the beginning of the book, is I say, I sort of stipulate that there, you know, if you don't get sucked into, into what IR theorists say about IR theory, but I stipulate that there are three challenges to anyone who wants to study international relations, all right? And these challenges are, um, first, what kind of knowledge can we have about international relations, 
right? What is the, what kind of knowledge should we seek, and what is the status of that knowledge? All right. The second big challenge for anyone studying international relations is the state. All right. And I th I, when I talk about the state, I'm talking about the state here as the source of tragedy, the, the, the state as a tragic actor in international relations. Tragic because it both is a source for good and bad. It both includes, but, but the process, the very process of its, of its construction also excludes. All right? So international relations theory is inspired by the tragedy of the state and examines ways in which that tragedy can be moderated, can be tolerated, or should be transcended. And third, at the heart of, it, of IR theory is the United States. Uh, the United States is central to international relations theory for a number of reasons. One is IR theory is American. Contemporary IR theory is American. To be sure, it's always had a kind of Anglo-American heritage, but IR theory gets produced in America. All right? Anyone who wants to look at any ranking of journals or ranking of universities knows that the United States is where the action is. And the rest of us are footnotes to the American empire in this sense. All right? so, so the United States is... Secondly, the United States is, is I think, the audience. It, it, as an actor, it's seen to be the main audience for IR theorists. In other words, if IR theory, you know, there's always a kind of audience. According to Robert Cox's sort of famous statement back in the 1980s, it's usually the United States. It's usually the United States who is seen to be the actor to operate on whatever prescriptions IR theory generates for international, international reform. Uh, so, what I call, uh, uh, well, let me sort of recapitulate here. I put liberal internationalism at the heart. Now, what is liberal internationalism? Liberal internationalism, to me, is a worldview which responds most systematically to each of the three challenges of IR theory. The challenge of knowledge, the challenge of the state, and the challenge of the United States in particular. Go back to what Martin White said. He said, he said the most fundamental question is, what is international society? And now, I wouldn't have thought that's a fundamental question. I'm interested in why White thought it was a fundamental question. I think what he was trying to do, he was trying to say, that if we're going to study international relations, and if IR theory is to be a kind of related discipline to the theory of the state, we have to, we have to fill anarchy, right? In other words, our international relations theory has to be part of a purposive project. And liberal internationalism is, I think, that central purposive project, which responds most systematically across the three challenges. So what I do in half the book is I, I elaborate liberal internationalism. I ask, what is it? All right? I start off with a kind of the, the foundations of, its, of, of liberalism as a political theory, all right? uh, talking about its, its, its bases in universal ideals that I defend uh, against uh, the critics, ideals in terms of freedom, human rights. And, and then I spend three chapters elaborating the way in which theory and practice interact in liberal internationalism. What liberal, liberal internationalism is very, very simple. It wants to internationalize liberalism. In other words, it wants a world that is more or less liberal. It, it wants to replicate 
not in a kind of imperialist sense, because as we know, there's vast differences between different kinds of liberal societies, which are nonetheless recognizably liberal. Within the kind of confines of, of liberal ideals, what liberalism, internationalism, wants to do is replicate the liberal democratic state. It wants a world of states. It doesn't want, a, doesn't want a, 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 a completely different world order than the one we have. It doesn't want a world government. All right? And you know, going back to Kant, it recognized that that would be despotic. But it wants to reproduce the Western liberal state all right, across the world. And there are three what I call engines of progress within the liberal internationalist uh, project. All right? And again, these are well known. They dominate the study of empirical IR in, in, in the United States. Okay? Uh, one is democratization. Okay? In other words, generating greater democratic processes within states across the world, right? across all 192 states. And this, of course, is an ongoing challenge since half the world's countries are not liberal democratic in any recognizable form. But that's one, so that's one engine of progress. The second engine of progress about which there are libraries of books written is interdependent stroke globalization. All right? the, the, the ways in which global capitalism uh, brings the world together, brings countries uh, uh, together and helps to replicate uh, the, liberal, the liberal democratic state. And the third is international organization. All right? The way in which liberal internationalism sees international organizations as helping to moderate anarchy and helping to generate, to transcend, if you like, short-term national interests, replace them with longer ones, and to deal with the problems raised, generated by interdependence and, and globalization. So I map these, what I call the engines of progress. I show how each of these kind of engines dominates the, the theoretical universe in American-oriented international relations. And then what I argue is that each of these engines are uh, sputtering, or each of these engines are in deep trouble. And the reason that they're in deep trouble is for the reason that, that realists have always understood. It is that the world is anarchical. Therefore, there is no central guidance system. All right? So when liberals talk about democratization, when they talk about independence, when they talk about the emergence and strengthening of international organizations, they are dealing with a world in which each of these processes is operating in, uh, in ways that are very hard to coordinate with one another. And they're also operating at levels which undermine each other. So the problem for liberal internationalism is the very condition which it seeks to transcend via the engines of progress. So if you like, liberals end up kind of, you know, constantly in this kind of vicious cycle um, that you could argue is, is partly of their, of their own making. And, and I devote then a considerable amount of time within the chapters that are focused on these engines of progress on the difficulties of achieving them. In other words, what are the barriers against democratization? Part of the problem with democratization as, as an international process is that, is that democratization presupposes strong states. Um, it presupposes that there is some stable national identity. Uh, democratization, often when it's introduced in societies that don't have a lot of the prerequisites that Western societies had before they democratized, democratization can end up being a recipe for disaster, instability, conflict, right? And there's a major tension here, I suggest, between one engine of progress, or alleged progress, which is democratization, 
and the, uh, the process of globalization itself, which uh, I argue has been a state-weakening process, particularly uh, uh, in, the, in the periphery. Then I turn my attention to, so I turn my attention to commercial liberalism and, uh, and the kind of the, uh, the allegedly pacifying tendencies of commercial liberalism that one finds in a, in a, in a lot of the literature. And here again, one confronts paradoxes, contradictions, difficulties in trying to get this particular engine to operate in a way that replicates or reproduces Western liberal democracy. And the central problem here, of course, is that global capitalism is, to put it simply, inequitable. And here I rely much on the work of developmental economists, and particularly the work of Paul Collier, who I've been sort of absorbed in over the past few months, who has shown how um, <clears throat> Western liberal modernity has produced a world of radical inequality in which what he calls the bottom billion uh, suffer from a series of conditions that they cannot literally get out of. So what commercial liberalism offers us uh, at most is what I call a two-tier world, a world in which there is the zone of liberal peace surrounded by um, a dangerous and intensifying uh, world of ongoing civil war and, and violence in the periphery. And then I turn my, my attention to regulatory liberalism, which is the third major engine uh, of, of, of progress in liberal internationalism, uh, focusing in particular on international organization. So what I do here is I look at, it, I look at international organization. I ask, how is international organization faring in generating, both generating cooperation and in dealing with and responding to the emotional transnational issues of the future? And the argument here is that, once again, liberal internationalism is in real trouble, that, uh, as most of us know, who study the main institutions of international cooperation today, the United Nations in particular, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and subordinate Bretton Woods institutions, uh, they are becoming obsolescent for a variety of reasons in terms of regulating global financial crisis, in terms of dealing with problems of international security that uh, do not respect uh, territorial borders and, uh, and in dealing with the challenges of international development. So, the, I mean, the basic point I want to get over is that, A, most of the work of, of international relations theory in the United States is informed by the underlying values of liberal internationalism. Most of the empirical work explores the status of these various projects, the project of democratization, the project of international organization, and the project of interdependent stroke globalization. And what I do is I map the, because of anarchy, and I, so I locate anarchy as being the central reason, in other words, the lack of an ability to coordinate these various engines, um, I look at the way in, in which they are struggling and in which they, they contradict to one another. And then what I do, and here I'm sort of trying to be, I mean, this is kind of, the, the sort of first half of the book is sort of trying to bring together a lot of literature. Uh, and then what I do in the second half of the book, I, I, I look at the critics. Because remember what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to do here is I'm, I'm suggesting, we're trying to argue in a Whiteian fashion, I, I want to defend pluralism, but I don't, wanna, I don't want balkanization. And part of what I'm trying to argue is that IR theory is pluralistic, but it must be dialogical. In other words, uh, it's, it's, 
it's not that, the problem with IR theory is not that the various perspectives are incommensurable with one another. Part of the problem with these kinds of presentations of IR theory as, a, as clashing isms is it implies incommensurability. Incommensurability means there is no common measure. You know, a realist is a, is a realist, a liberal is a liberal, a Marxist is a Marxist, and they can't speak to one another. So they, they just sort of, they talk past each other. So what I do, when, when I'm in the second half of the book, I kind of reconstruct IR theory as an a ongoing permanent debate informed by, A, the challenges of the field that I mentioned earlier, and B, the dominance of and tensions within the engines of liberal internationalism. And that's how I see, uh, on the one hand, realism, and on the other hand, cosmopolitanism, stroke, critical theory, whatever you want to call it. So I have a look at, at realism, and I argue that, that realism is permanently important. It is absolutely necessary, and it is completely hopeless. Right? All at the same time. It's necessary in that, and realists, I argue, are at, are at their best when liberal internationalism, as it can do, mutates, when it can mutate into liberal imperialism. You know, realist writers are at their best, for example, at critiquing United States foreign policy uh, prior to and after the invasion of, of Iraq. That's where realism is, is great, because it, it, it tempers the enthusiasm of the liberal internationalist. It is good at exposing why competing national interests frustrate the engines of development, the engines of growth that are part of, of liberal internationalism. But realism is hopeless, A, in generating a theory that will demonstrate the truth of its underlying assumptions. It has never been able to do that. And insofar as it has been able to do that, it is only by dropping some of the fundamental assumptions that make realists realists in the first place. Right? And, it's, and I think it's a terribly sad indictment of realist thought, particularly American realist thought, that they've sought to persuade us of the truth of their underlying assumptions about anarchy, power, etc., by trying to construct an empirical theory of world politics, uh, which is, uh, should be understood not in terms of tragedy, but rather comedy for the total failure of realists to predict just about anything that's happened since the end of the Cold War. So I'm both highly critical of realism, but at the same time, I defend it. I, I defend it as a necessary, uh, a necessary critique of, but certainly not incommensurable with liberal internationalism. And I argue that realists depend upon liberal internationalism, that without it, they would be empty. In other words, they are, they, liberal internationalism fuels the realist critique, and without that fuel, realism is pretty hopeless on its own. And I argue that the same thing is true of critical theory and cosmopolitanism. What, what cosmopolitanism does in IR theory is, it's, and, and, and here it's similar to, to White's category of uh, revolutionism, what it does is it, it also draws our attention to the tensions, the contradictions of liberal internationalism, but it kind of mirror images what realists do. Whereas realists retreat uh, to arguing that we must tolerate anarchy, and the best that one can do is moderate it, moderate the, the competition for power through the balance of power, but uh, there's nothing much we can do. Uh, about so many of the issues that transcend territorial boundaries or that, 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 that uh, lead so many, many countries to be uh, just at the kind of complete sort of the margins of international relations. What a cosmopolitan do is they radicalize that insight and they argue that liberal internationalism, they take it seriously, they take the underlying values seriously, but they dispense with the engines of progress. They argue that 
that, that uh, we, you know, there needs to be, if you like, revolution. Uh, a revolutionary new forms of, of international relations which will require a radical restructuring of the state system, which is fine. You know, I, I'm happy to, to read cosmopolitan theories of justice. They're absolutely interesting and fascinating, but they are also taken to the extreme as about as useless as realists on the other side. Um, useless because they do not respond to the fundamental challenges of international relations that I spell out at the beginning. If you think that those challenges are appropriate, then cosmopolitanism is not particularly helpful because it, it, does, it, it, it doesn't try and moderate the state as a source of, stra of, of tragedy, as liberal internationalism does. It seeks to dispense with it altogether or to bypass it or to celebrate uh, fanciful utopian ideas such as the idea of an emancipatory global civil society of one form or another, uh, which I don't have a great deal of, 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 of faith in it. So, what I suggest then that the contradictions of liberal internationalism provide the fuel for the realist as well as the cosmopolitan critique. Each of these critiques resolves the paradoxes of liberal internationalism by privileging particular values and particular goals. For realists, priority must be given to order and peace among the powerful states. For cosmopolitans, priority must be accorded to individuals rather than states. The paradox of liberal internationalism drives the critiques on either side of the central theoretical framework in IR theory. But those critiques will not end the great debate, nor should they end it. I go back to Martin White. When I scrutinize my own psyche, White once confessed, I seem to find all these three ways of thought within me. I, our theory is a dialogue between ways of thought that compete with each other, but also depend on each other. The competition and the dependence are the source of its fascination. So to participate, I conclude, in I, our theory is not to bring the dialogue to an end, but to contribute to an ongoing conversation about our global future. Yeah, well, that's kind of my fanciful conclusion. But so, so, in a sense, I totally subvert what you find in these books. In these books, you find pluralism, balkanization, lack of dialogue. I argue there's not many perspectives. There's really only one. There's only one dominant, purposive conception of international relations that deserves the name, worldview, or perspective. It dominates the field, uh, and the other schools of thought are parasitic and dependent on it. We need them all, but we also need them, both at the level of theory, but also at the level of practice, to interact with one another. Uh, and that's kind of where I end the book. So, now the book is finished, and I've kind of, I've said my thing, I, I kind of, what I want to do in the future is actually look at um, the way in which this dialogue can operate at the level of, of theory and practice. So essentially what the book is, is it's really saying goodbye to all that, all right? Goodbye to a particular way of understanding the field of international relations. And at the same time, I could, if it's got any ambition, if anyone bothers to read the damn thing, the, 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 the main ambition I have for it is to, is to suggest that IR theory is at the center of the study of international relations, but it can be at the center of a, a vibrant discipline if you think about it the way I think about it and not the way in which these other people will have you think about it. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Martin. Pleasure. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au.
forward slash podcasts.